You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. James Braun is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. In this episode, we speak with a veteran investment advisor and a specialist in investing in a diverse set of Ontario-based construction projects. You'll hear what investors are looking for these days and how these two professionals deliver for their clients. Welcome, everybody. This is Alternative Thinking. I'm James Barong with CASA. And today we have Dorothyanna Orser with Echelon Wealth Management and Devin Cranson with his eponymous Cranson Capital. We're going to be talking about uh, the wealth management uh, area of the industry and real estate and uh well let's let's get right into it uh we'll start with self intros uh maybe start with you uh dorothyanna let's uh let's hear about your business and uh maybe if you could uh talk about some of the some of the challenges you're facing we just been through covid that's been fun but uh what, what's happening in your business at echelon there well our business or our team uh thank you for inviting me to this this is great our business or our team consists of um deeply resourced team of six it's led by myself and my partner, Dietmar Newhouse. We began um, our partnership in 2012 after about 35 years in the industry, much with bank-owned firms. And uh, as portfolio manager, I manage the discretionary accounts, execute on mandates which are calibrated individually, and we tend to be biased towards goals-based investing. And Dietmar, on the other hand, he discovers opportunities for investing clients. So. That would include microcap special situations and working with issuers and um, merchant banks, capital advisory groups, and coordinating all of that for our book. But ultimately, we have to agree on which opportunities are included in the portfolio. So I think back to your original question, our biggest challenge right now is time. Um, It's short supply, as everyone Mm -hmm. knows. And the regulatory environment has just taken more and more demands on managing assets and an example is when I started in the business, the average assets under MIN, which is AUM, was $20 million. Clients didn't even sign a form. Now, the average assets under MIN is a minimum of $100 million, and the client is much more involved, as they should be. So I would say um, that's our team and our challenges on the immediate front. Wow, I remember those days. Uh, I'm, I don't want to do the math because you know, it started when you were six years old. But you know, I started in '95 at RBC, and they literally there was T plus five, and my manager is like, "Yeah, you know, if uh, maybe I should say this, anyways, um, yeah, if there's something someone wants to buy rural bank stock, great, just make sure they have the check in by next week." I'm like what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, obviously things have changed. There's there's regulation, which is good. Compliance. I always think of. If uh, people have a really big problem with regulations, and there's probably other stuff going on because mm-hmm. uh, you know it's it's there for the for the for the clients, obviously. The, yeah, a lot of times it's pretty well well thought. Um, but uh, I mean, think, thinking of overhead uh, and and bureaucracy, how how has it been going from like the bank owned firm to uh, to Echelon, like one of the larger independents, and how has that transitioned for you to to kind of like I say, like flip your book? Well, for the most part, it was just the paperwork. Um, and in our particular case, our firm, we switched to Macquarie and then it was sold four times. So that was a bit cumbersome. Right. Oh, but yeah. um, at the end of the day, uh, it's 
more transparent. Um, we can ha hold pretty much any investment, Royal Bank, TD, private investments. And the paperwork is probably more onerous because we tend to use, um, like right now we have Fidelity as our back office and we're merging with another firm. So that will be, again, mm -hmm. repapering. So I would say not really any difference there because they've all, you know, we're all under the IROC umbrella. So I think everybody's under the same um, scrutiny, but I do find smaller firms, because we're smaller, I think we can be scrutinized more by IROC and I think it should be the other way around, right? Because I think that, that sometimes, because they're larger firms, they think they're doing it properly and, you know, that may not be the case, so. Yeah, yeah, everybody has to have, I think, their head on straight to do everything right. But uh, yeah, you're right. They, uh, the small ones, I guess, maybe do get a bit more more scrutiny. But um, tell us about, you said you're writing discretionary portfolios. And uh, so I guess you're, you have your portfolio manager's license. How, how would you describe that to someone who has no clue how that works? Because it sounds mm -hmm. like you're basically running a mutual fund or you can... You can call the shots like how involved is the client like you said maybe they're more involved now like how involved is the client in the in this discretionary part of the portfolio so we call it a partnership but uh you know what we'll do is we'll meet with people when they want to sign on we just sort of say let's have a coffee see if we're both a fit we say we're all smart in the room it's more this is just what we've chosen to be in you know we have the designations the work the experience so typically clients want us to manage their money because you know, I can remember when you didn't have an yeah. discretionary account and you call a client and say, okay, I'm going to sell Royal and buy TD. And you could almost feel, you know, the hairs on the back of the neck up because they're decision makers. So it has yeah. been embraced. And originally the bank said, oh, nobody's ever going to go fee-based, which is why I left. Right. So, because I felt it was, um, it was uh, the right way to invest because you're not putting the commissions. I remember I'd want to do something at the end of the month. And I think all oh, our clients oh, yeah. think I'm doing this for commission. So now you just make the decisions and it takes out that and it's transparent. They know how much they're, they're paying, all the returns are after fees. So I think it's the way of the future. And then you're still going to have your transactions, your transactional accounts and people who just yeah. you know, want to be making the decision. But generally they switch because what we'll do is we'll run side by side, us and them. And then they see, okay, here, you can have all my money. And then you said you have the other side with the private investments and merchant banking and stuff. So how does uh, how, how does that work into the portfolio? I guess that's, is that transaction-based or is it that's still into the fee-based stuff? Or It can be both. So if you have an accredited investor and it's say an, an IR company, they may just want to buy one of their companies, right? So, and they may have their own discretionary managers as one company we work with. So mm. uh, DeepMar, my business partner, he, he uncovers those opportunities and then we'll say, okay, I'll say, okay, I want half a percent in the model. And then we both have to agree we like it. And then it goes in the model at half a percent across all the accounts. And then individually, we'll send out a separate email to clients who aren't managed and say, here's what we're doing for our managed. If you're interested, let us know. So it's... That's pretty cool. Covers, you know, clients who don't want to be managed or only want to have part of their money managed. Um, or want to have a bigger chunk than we would in a model mm -hmm. so it allows for for all those uh, nuances that's oh, great yeah it gives them control and yeah not everybody's going to be yeah into, into the models or not so that's very cool 
Well, let's shift over to Devin. So, Devin, how uh, how has it been with with Cranston Capital? Uh, I'm not sure we got the name from, but uh, tell us about what Cranston and what you've been doing, and uh, and how how things have been. And then, if you have something like, what's your your biggest challenge right now? Yeah, thanks, James, and thanks for including me today. Um, so Cranston Capital is an exempt market dealer focused on investing in real estate and primarily development. Um, we have a new product that we came out with last year called the Cranston Capital Real Estate Development Fund, where we're trying to bring uh, this type of investing to the retail um, channels. Um, but historically, I guess I'll just give you some background on on the business and where um, and where uh, it came from. Um, in 2006, I started as a corporate finance advisory investment bank um, and wasn't real estate focused. I was doing all kinds of different transactions, debt advisory and capital raising. Um, and in 2011, I was approached by uh, Anthony Heller, who is um, the founder of Plaza Corp, one of the biggest uh, real estate development companies in the country, been around since the 80s and had built over 10,000 homes. And wow. I, had just tried this model once before in Liberty Village, where he put together, um, you know, 200 plus investors to go into a project. And they did very well, making over 200% return over like a six or seven year period. And um, he wanted to do it again. And so he came to me and, and partnered with mm -hmm. me and we created uh, in 2011, 2011, an exempt market dealer business focused on um, accredited investors and started out really just raising money for Plaza Corp. And in the first few years, we did a number of, um, of, of transactions, all in real estate development. Um, and then about 2015, we expanded and started doing some other, uh, we did mix and REITs and seniors housing and student housing and some other stuff. Um, and then started taking on other developers other than Plaza Corp. And um, basically we have today 21 active development projects in the GTA. Um, we kind of focus on uh, a few different areas. Um, we, we started in the high rise business, but we've now uh, done a number of transactions that are low rise or townhouse. We've done mid rise. We've done purpose built rental. Um, and then we have another sort of program where we buy um, development sites for future development where we're just taking it through the rezoning. It has enough cash flow, mm. kind of like land banking, but with cash flow. Um, so that's, that's, what's the makeup of the 21 projects. There's 300 million of equity that we've raised all from, uh, accredited investors, family office, high net worth, um, directly. And, uh, now what we're trying to do with the new fund is bring it to the retail channels and, um, enable the investment advisor community to, to put their investors into these types of, uh, of offerings. Um, Wow. What's, hap what's happening today in the market is very, very interesting. Everyone talks about real estate. And um, I think there's a big difference between investing in real estate and real estate development. Um, you know, we're not talking mm -hmm. about stuff that has legacy rents and having to deal with new interest rates and how they're going to figure out um, those business models. Um, we're not uh, dealing with public markets um, and re price fluctuation and things like that. We're mm -hmm. investing in development where the developer really only can build if they can show the bank that they have a profit margin because they all need construction financing. And if there's no profit margin, they won't get the financing. Um, and so we only invest in projects that, you know, we can see that there's a margin. Um, costs have gone crazy over the last couple of years, but because we're yeah. so active, we have 
you know, we're on the ground. We have uh, actually three projects that just started construction this year. So we're seeing the budgets. We know what the construction costs are today. We know what's happening with, you know, lumber prices, how they went up like crazy and have come back down. And, um, you know, we're well aware of, of the hurdles that developers are facing and the challenges and, and also the opportunity because, as I think is well documented in the media, um, we need to build a lot more houses. Uh, there's a shortfall. Oh yeah, you know, the million five is what the the province says we need over the next ten years, which would mean 150,000 starts a year. We've never started more than 75,000 in a year. We've never had a completion um, <laughs> of that of that amount either. So I don't even think the industry has the capacity to build as much um as we need and and i use the analogy of like the shoemaker if you had an order for a thousand pairs of shoes and you needed money to to make those shoes but you knew they would sell for sure and you knew you'd have a profit margin people would be lining up to give you money to help you make those shoes and that's the kind of way i look at the housing market Mm -hmm. we just we need housing and uh developers need capital and they need patient capital um so that's uh, what we're trying to provide we're trying to um, put investors who don't need liquidity um, into these deals where they can be patient. And because they don't have liquidity and they need to be patient, their returns are so much higher than what you get in, you know, traditional investments. So, yeah. Well, how long are these, uh, is the construction cycle that you have here for, for these types of projects or how, and how, does it, how maybe how much does it vary? It, it depends. I, I would say that um, in the high rise business, if you take a site that's unzoned, um, that's been the problem in the market the last few years is that it's taken forever to get mm-hmm. through the zoning. Um, you know, the provincial government is trying to attack that and make that shorter. And um, there's appeal rights that you can use to speed that up. Um, but typically, if you're going into an unzoned high rise site, you, you probably need at least six years um, from unzoned to completed project. Um, if you're going into a zone site, it can be four years. Um, if it's uh, low rise, like a, we have a few townhouse projects, you can get from zoned to completion in three and a half or four years. It only takes about 18 months to build um, a townhouse project. Wow. So, um, so that's what we're seeing a lot more opportunity now in sort of the shorter duration projects. Um, when we do a rezoning investment, we usually look for four or five year hold just because you get the the bump from the density increase, but also time also adds value to that. So um, in terms of pricing going up over time. Um, so, you know, I, I think that you need to think of it as kind of five or six years, but I think that there are certain projects that can be done in, in three and a half or four. So how does it work? And you, you're just lending and then you'd be lending for that entire term or you would say, once you got the zoning, then we'll give you the 18 months, two year loan to do the actual construction. Um, no. So the construction loans come from the bank. So we're equity partners. Um, oh, very good. Yeah, we're going in as a partner. Um, generally, the stru- there's there's two different structures, I guess, we use. We use a joint venture structure where we're a co-owner um, or we use a limited partnership structure where um, the limited partnership actually owns the land and then hires the developer as the development manager. Um, we usually make the developer invest in the limited partnership because they always have to have some capital um, in the yeah. deal. Um, The joint ventures are a little different where they put up, they've either already bought the land or um, they have partners already and and we're just becoming a partner in the deal that they've already put together. Oh, wow. 
yeah, so I guess, uh, yeah, normally we see these people doing lending. So the, the rates rising affects them. I guess it does kind of affect you because you have whatever people can buy this stuff from later on, uh, unless they're building it. Like you see, you have these build, like purpose-built rentals. And then I guess the developer just takes it from there. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah, so how does it work? To ha- how does the handoff work at the end of this too? Like it just, uh, they buy you out or? or well, so I just want to clarify a couple of things, I guess. So the, the, the way, if we're buying to sell, um, one of the big mm-hmm. advantages of this type of investment is that they have to pre-sell. So in order for the bank to give them money, they have to oh, right. sell the units in advance. So um, like an example, we, we have a townhouse project in Scarborough uh, where we sold it's 81 units. We sold 78 units in February, March 22. Um, so well, well higher than the threshold the bank needed. Um, we got great pricing and, and now we can get the bank financing to go um, but we've de-risked the project considerably because we've pre-sold yeah. it and we got deposits on all those pre-sales. So even if, you know, there's talk of people, you know, if interest rates continue to go up, they might not be able to to close when it's finished. I don't think you have that problem in townhouses because they're usually owner occupied and they want to live there. Um, mm-hmm. but, you know, the, we have a deposit. So if somebody walks away, they're walking away from from their deposit. Um, and then you can resell the the unit at the current market price. So it, it does considerably de-risk it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it's finished, we're closing each unit. So as, um, as a project occupies um, and starts to close, uh, we pay off the bank uh, lending first. And then our waterfall triggers where generally it's return of capital first. And then there's usually a hurdle for investors and then a split with the developer after that. So... Um, so that's typically how it works in the in the build to sell. In the purpose built rental, uh, the plan is to hold it for a year after completion, um, have the lease up there, and then sell it once it's fully occupied and operational. And you can see what the NOI is. Um, I always think with purpose built rentals, if you hold them longer, um, you'll just generate you know more income in the short term and more uh, profitability in the long term. Um, and in a lot of the deals, what we've structured, especially purpose-built rental, um, we've structured the opportunity for the limited partnership to um, roll over and continue to hold as an option um, if the investors decide that they want to you know, now have an income stream and not sell the apartment building. Um, but in the, the projects where we're building to sell, there's a buyer already there and at closing, they, they close and we, and we get our exit. Um, so it really is manufacturing of homes and, and you're getting paid a share of the profit when it finishes. Um, you mentioned interest rates and interest rates have an impact for sure on the housing market. What um, we're seeing in typically what you see is that as interest rates rise, um, you see a higher uh, desire to rent um, because people are priced out of their mortgage and now they have to go rent. Um, and usually interest rates and vacancy usually are kind of opposites. But in this market, we've seen for the last 10 years, aside from COVID, vacancy below 2%. So today, interest rates are up and people can't afford uh, their mortgage. They go to look to rent and there's not a lot of options. So rental rates have gone through the roof. Um, And so we see, you know, the opportunity as the full housing market, not just the resale or the buy and sell market. It's also the rental market. A lot of the pre-construction is um, investors buying condos to become landlords. And uh, well, the media you know, doesn't love that. The fact is that there haven't been purpose-built rentals in 
Canada mm-hmm. you know, for 30 years. So we're starting to pick up a little bit on the personal rental, but not nearly enough to meet the demand for rent. And those investors yeah. investing in those condos have been fulfilling that rental need for the last 10 years. So um, I expect them to continue, especially now that rents are um, are getting up there. And you know, pretty soon rents will be uh, at a point where it makes sense to buy again at these prices. Cool. Um, how about uh, Dor- Dorothyana? Um, how are you uh, set up for real estate in your portfolios? There, do you guys do you see much of this? And then, how do you typically take exposure? Is oh, it an equity totally. one like uh, Devon has, or lending, or I guess there's a lot of options for you. I'm a big uh, real estate uh, asset person, and uh, I'm really glad to hear Devon's story and be interested in connecting later. So, in our model, we have sort of range of up to 20% in REITs, and right now we're about 10. And personally, I had bought and sold 30 properties, and I tell clients, unless you want to be in this space, you don't want to be in this space unless it's for your personal home or recreational. So my last two properties were ones that I was in Boston on a holiday and the pipe blew up and it was a freeze in Waterloo. And so clients have appreciated that. And, you know, we stick to um, basically it's about execution. So you want to know the company can execute. So typically it's the large REITs. And we sort of, if you know, with bonds, you have the barbell approach long bond, short bonds. I think of this for REITs where you have the large caps and the small caps. So, um, you know, we'll buy the large caps because they have deep lines of credit. Their balance sheets look good. And uh, it can be up to right now, it's on, as, as I was saying, 10% in our model. And I'd like to get it up to 15%. And we can include private investments. Uh, the thing there is we can't necessarily hold it across the model. So we're actually reviewing that right now with one of our new uh, people that's come on board just researching that whole side of it because sometimes you know it's a minimum amount is there a minimum amount on yours devon it's ten thousand dollars because we're open for rsp and tfsa investing as well there you go okay one thing that i that i do like to differentiate because there's been so many private REITs that are apartment REITs that have gone through, um, I guess, the the IROC channels and um, some have had some great success at raising money through um, this avenue. We're very different because we're not involved in holding real estate. It's all about development and building new and manufacturing. So people talk to me all the time about, you know, how are you dealing with um, you know, legacy rents and the new interest rates, and we don't deal with that. You know, how are you dealing with resales and uh, NAVs coming down and things like that? We don't, we don't deal yeah. with that. We, you don't care about that stuff. Yeah, yeah. totally different. Yeah. We look at a piece of dirt and say, is there, if you put, you know, 250,000 square feet on this piece of dirt, are you going to make money? And, and it's, it's, you know, the reality is in Toronto, if it's in the city and even some of the suburbs, if you build it, it will sell because there's such a huge demand, it's will it sell for enough price that has a premium over the cost to build where you're going to have a profit margin. And one of the things that we've been focused on recently is on the risk mitigation. When we are going into deals now, and that's one thing that's changed in the market is that the developers, um, there's so much need for capital and a lot of people have stopped putting money out. So that's kind of created opportunistic um, investments for us. And what we're doing now is, we're structuring deals where we um, where we take the first profit. 
So, you know, one of the deals we just did, um, it's calling for 12 million in profit. We're saying, well, we'll put the money in, but we take the first three and a half million developer gets nothing. And then on the second three and a half million, we're taking 60%. So if the developer says they're going to make 12 million and they lose five of profit and they only make seven, we're still going to have a $6 million return on our seven and a half investment. Uh, I think it still works out to like a 77% return, even if the developer loses almost half his profit. Um, And that's been kind of the theme of our investing with putting these hurdle rates in where even if there's a disaster, we're not going to be as affected as the the developer is. Um, And I think that that's uh, something that's changed in the market that helps us really mitigate um, against downside. Have you had any um, properties where you've had no liquidity, still no liquidity? Maybe you can talk about that just for my own personal benefit, please. Yeah, for sure. And and there is no liquidity. And we've had um, we've had the biggest thing that we've seen is death and divorce, I guess, where people want to <laughs> liquidate their um, their units. Um, in, in both cases, um, we can re-register. So like what I tell someone who's going through divorce is just take the, you know, if you have 100 units, just we'll get two new certificates of 50 each or however you're splitting it. Um, in the case of death, we can put it in the name of the estate. Um, you know, if they have to liquidate, um, they're really not going to get full value. And, and the reason for that is that there's a difference in tax. Um, if someone were to sell the units while it's under development, it, it's a capital gain tax. Um, but if you wait till the completion, it's active income. So active income can be great for for certain um, investors. Um, But um, if one, you know, I I gave the example the other day where if a unit's $100 was the original purchase price and we're expecting it to be $200 when it's completed and someone sells in the middle for $150, they're paying capital gains on that $50. So they're paying tax on on $25. Um, But then the person who bought it has income tax on the full hundred, which will be 50% so or or whatever their tax rate is. Um, But, you know, chances are they're basically not going to make any money if they paid 150 because they're giving it all the CRA at the end of the day. So have to be careful um, if you're for the tax, if you're going to try to liquidate in the middle, you're probably going to have to discount um, to some extent in order to get liquidity. And so that's why we always say that you got to be able to um, be patient with these types of investments. How about uh, Dorothy Anna? Um, you said you have six people you're working with, along with your partner uh, Deepmar and that. So, how how big can you get in uh, like under the uh, the echelon umbrella? Now that you've got everything kind of set to go there, is it? Uh, and then, like, how many relationships uh, do you guys work with now? How big can it get? And are you looking to, I guess, grow your team and and scale it up a bit more? Or are you kind of like, ah, this is a nice place to be right now? Um, well, no, we want to be at a billion. So um, awesome. we have we have room currently to probably double our assets right now with our team because uh, it's about execution and technology. And one of the things that I think has really changed in the business is technology. And again, you know, when I started, when I mentioned that earlier, you know, you had 20 million and you'd have a, you know, all your names and you'd have, I used to have a journal where I tracked clients dividends and things like that now all of that's done so individually you can have a book of a hundred million and manage it so when there's six of us we should easily be able to be at 600 right so and if we bring on another team or another person i think you know that's what we're also looking at so 
very doable and it's all about uh, systems, technology um, and clients, you know, I have clients, they started with a hundred and they're a million dollars now. So assets are growing. We have people who are retiring. We just opened an account and before they opened it, they'd referred us to somebody. So I think there's a lot of people who um, are out there not getting the, the uh, hands-on bespoke approach and, an education. So um, I think there's lots of room to grow. That's awesome. And you probably remember the days, uh, it sounds like you had one, when, when, the, when your book of business was literally a book. Mm-hmm. And then when you change shops, you take your book to the new company. It's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> of course, now there's databases and that kind of stuff mm-hmm. to, uh, to keep things going. Um, wow. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, a billion is mm-hmm. uh, quite, when I, was, uh, when I was in the late 90s, there was one guy out of Boston that had a billion dollar book. And we thought, mm-hmm. oh my God, that's unattainable. But now it's now it's getting there. Um, and how do you think your like would the portfolios change, or would you guys is it kind of glacial moves as you add different types of securities, like you mentioned the um, like the private REITs and such, um, or is it how, how do you think that that's going to evolve with as your book grows? Because you'll have you can afford higher minimums, I guess. So you can maybe some people set up their own fund and that kind of thing. Yeah. So and, and we have talked about that, but um, for us. You know, just if I can back up, we educate clients on the importance of asset allocation. So coming into COVID, you could say, you know, fortuitously or because of experience, we had 30% cash because every time I'd go to buy something, I think, oh, that's too expensive. Oh, that's too expensive. And then COVID happened. So I think, you know, regardless of the size, it's about the asset allocation and the variability of cash, fixed income and equities. And in the equities, we include the REITs. So that's not going to change regardless of the client's size. It's more the nuances. If they're over a million, they can have accredited investments. You know, so I would think Devin, some of his would fall under that. So they can have non-brokered private placements or brokered private placements. So that's where you'd get the change. So we have our foundation and our given names that everybody will have. And then the larger the account, like somebody who's a hundred thousand wouldn't have the same thing as wouldn't have all the names that a person who's a million would have because they they've um, gone beyond their foundation. So when they're a hundred thousand, we have to build the foundation secure, you know, our first mantra is never jeopardize the principal. So, and that's year over year. So we, you know, we're, we'll say regardless, you know, of market conditions year over year, exempting COVID or some major black swan event yeah. year over year, you should be able to look back and, Typically, we'll say three years because your time horizon is three to seven years for a moderate growth portfolio. So when you look back three years from now, we should have made you money. We got the cash and fixed income paying you. And then the bucket in the middle is the equities, which has the volatility. So, um, you know, I think that's um, all part of what we do. Very cool. How about you, Devin? Like, uh, it sounds like you said you had like 21 projects on the go. How do you keep track of everything? Do you guys have like uh, some sort of integrated database model in that technology, or is it is it can it be done like uh, with uh, pen and paper sort of stuff? Yeah, I guess it's um, it. There is some technology that we use more for tracking the investors, just because we have hundreds of investors across the projects. Um, but in terms of the projects, we have like a quarterly meeting with each developer. Um, we provide updates um, to the investors on the projects. Um, once the projects get into um, development, into construction, um, 
they take on their construction financing. And at that point, they have to hire a third party. Uh, the banks usually make them hire a third party monitor um, that that provides reports every time they want to do a draw against the bank loan. So we get a copy of that report and it's very thorough. Usually they're like 80 pages that touch every single um, budget item and, and detail. Um, so we get those uh, on a regular basis and just staying on top of the developers and making sure that they communicate with us. There's certain approvals that they need. Um, and in certain cases, we control the limited partnership bank account. So they'll have cash requests. And so we're just actively involved with them um, to that extent. And on the investor side, it's just, you know, we use technology to manage uh, who's in what project and then to distribute information to them and distribute tax slips and financial statements and that sort of thing. Very cool. And yeah, you mentioned like kind of transparency and such. So how much would you uh, give to someone like Dorothyana, um, like the, like this, this, the quarterly binder, it sounds like you create uh, the reports or is it more like a newsletter or, or does it depend on kind of what they're asking for? Just wondering how, how granular you get. I imagine you have some fairly demanding investors, but uh, how does that work? And especially with the fund, I guess. Yeah, so um, we provide, uh, it's really just a PDF document that gets sent to um, the investors with um, the information. And some developers um, are, are better than others at providing um, the detail. And we try to put it together into kind of a consistent format. In the fund, um, we have a, a quarterly uh, update that we put out and it has sections on each project that we're, that we're invested in. So, um, you know, one of the things that I do like about it is most of our investors are GTA or Southern Ontario based. And um, I always encourage them to drive by, um, you know, you can actually go and see, you know, the tower going up, like we have one in the entertainment district. And I know an investor that goes by every couple months and every couple months he sees a couple more floors being added. It's going to be a 48 story, two tower, 48 story project. So um, you can actually see it come to life, which I think is great. Um, but yeah, we try to just get them as much information on a quarterly basis as we can. Very good. And how about you, Dorothy? Like what kind of transparency do you require from these these private investments that, uh, or maybe 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 DeepMart handles that? Like how, uh, yeah, how much, how much are you looking for? And then how much do you communicate to your clients? Or do they say, you know what, Dorothy, Anna, fantastic. You're the discretionary manager. You just do as you like. Yeah, so with discretionary, they don't get, they sign to not get annual reports and all that. So they depend on us. Mm -hmm. So everything comes through us. Um, and Deepmar will meet with companies and then we'll have ongoing meetings, updates on the companies. So we're constantly in touch with them, you know, if they're going to need money, that sort of thing. So we'll know if we're buying in the market, well, maybe we're better to wait because with the offering, there may be a warrant. So um, a lot of transparency and we're all, we, we uh, are all about transparency and that's why we've sort of not gone the fund route because we want them to see what they hold in their account. So we'll say, you know, when we do the reviews, we'll set up the websites for them to review and the companies that we're following. And just like Devin was saying, when you can drive by, when you can see the website and see what they're doing, you know, we generally say, you'll be calling us to buy more of these. They don't, but it's more, you know, they'll be proud to own them, especially with ESG and, you know, knowing the people and seeing their faces they, you know the investor section is very comprehensive and that's really changed since years ago you know transparency i think is very much needed across everything and accountability so 
Yeah, I was uh, lucky enough to sit down actually with Mark Mobius in October. I was in Dubai. He actually lives there. Oh, and um, cool. he, he's, the, he's like the original. Like he back, mm-hmm. like Sir John Templeton, he was like, we're not buying arms makers and all this kind of stuff, which makes sense because, you know, mm-hmm. very, very religious. Which, and, and then he says, he says, you think it's a thing that we're doing because of his religious convictions or whatever other reason? He goes, we actually did better because these companies didn't screw up as much. And that's the story now is like, can you make money with ESG? Well, yeah, because there's lots of bad actors out there. And if you kind of mm-hmm. figure out who's not that, then you can stay, a, you know, sidestep some of the trouble. But have you seen that uh, with some of your port- holdings and that? And now how big a how big a deal is that to clients? clients it's very big. Well? And, and years ago, I looked at um, being a portfolio manager at one firm, but it had no traction and people didn't care. And, you know, now I think they can. important and and i'll jump in on that i i see it as important for what we're doing i mean we're um building real estate that's going to be here for a long time um one of the main things we try to focus on is you know transit oriented real estate um you know they're getting rid of parking minimums so um you know it seems like there's a fight against the car and when you have a a parking spot you got to put uh ev um you know, electric vehicle spots in, um, bike lockers. Um, but one area that I'm really interested in and in investigating, especially with purpose-built rentals is geothermal um, and how we can, you know, kind of unlock um, energy in the ground as opposed to having to tap into the grid. And um, we see that as, you know, something that renters will demand at one point where, you know, you can, you know, you can have clean energy if you live in this building versus another building. Um, so that's one of the things that we're really trying to focus on and get our developers to look at, um, because as Dorothyanna said, like the future is is green and and clean and sustainable. Love it. And how does this uh, what's it the lead gold standards? I mean, the, the stuff that you're doing is is like that makes sense. I mean, transit and, and parking and all that. Do you guys do the uh, do you do you give a lot of um, credence or, or or attention to the the lead the the ratings there, or is that something that uh, that's that's not that big a deal in the stuff that you're you're producing. Yeah, the, the leads is kind of like old news, I guess. Um, it's something that they used to try to um, aspire to, um, but the city of Toronto's come out with its own um, green building standards that I think exceed lead. Um, so I don't know how many builders are still looking at lead. Maybe in the commercial space they may, um, but right now all the developers have to meet the Toronto green standards um, in building. So. Um, so everybody is building more sustainably than they used to. Um, but I do think the ones that focus on, uh, where the future is with, you know, geothermal and electric vehicles, and, um, they, they just thinking more, um, about the future as opposed to today, especially when you're building assets that are going to be on the ground for the next, you know, 40, 50, 60 years. Um, you know, I think they have to exceed what, what lead used to be. Um, so everyone's kind of focused on that. Love it. Well, we talked a lot about the future, as you just mentioned, and trends and such. So where, what's the biggest thing that you see in your business? Uh, maybe we'll start with Devin for uh, over the next like three to five years. Um, something that'll, that looking back, people go, oh yeah, that wasn't exactly obvious, but it actually did happen. Is there anything that, that comes to mind? Well, what we were just talking about, like starting to put uh, more sustainable practices into building, I think is something that we're seeing a change right now. 
Um, but in, in general, I mean, it's very expensive to build a high rise, even though we need density. Um, and uh, we're seeing a lot more opportunity for us in the short term in, in low rise um, and, uh, and purpose built rental. And so I think that a lot of builders are going to start trying to figure out how to make the purpose built rental work. And CMHC has a program that helps for that. Um, but what I really see is all three levels of government um, focused on the fact that we need to build more housing. And, you know, you can't rely on government for, for anything, I guess. But I, I do think that all three are trying to come up with ideas to make it um, more affordable and, and just enable um, the development of more housing. They, you know, they don't want to benefit the developers, but they're trying to get supply in the market. So I do expect that you'll see more and more um, programs geared towards um, getting more houses built. And so I kind of feel like we're in the right place at the right time. I think we have been, I mean, 2015 to 2020 was really good for development in Toronto. Um, and I do think that this need of 1.5 million over the next uh, 10 years of uh, new homes, I think means that there's a long runway for us to keep building more houses. And um, just because the supply and demand imbalance is there, it's going to happen. And the developers who do it right are going to make money doing it. And Dorothyana, last word to you. What's uh, what, what do you see as the big emerging trend? Um, I got three, return to value, investing versus growth, and actually a bit of both. Um, mm. A bull market for commodities and tech will save the day. So I'll just expand briefly on both. So value is generally outperformed the market until the past 10 years because you had Apple and Google and those sorts of things. So they're now more becoming mm -hmm. even growth at a reasonable price. So I see REITs fitting into that space because um, they're about the balance sheet, they're real assets. Um, and so value investing, you look at the fundamentals of a company and it takes the volatility out of account. So when the markets fall, which they're going to be, you know, every, every time we have a bad year, they're like, oh, this will, this is the worst ever. And then it happens again, as you were saying at the start. So I think yeah. clients want to minimize their volatility. So, you know, value can, can mitigate that. And then uh, the bull market for commodities in the past, it was just about the price. Now, all these commodities are needed, you know, including food. We're even saying that's a, a commodity. So the move to plant-based food has created, created a demand there. So again, bull market for commodities because it's now supply and demand issues, not just uh, supply or price as in the past. And then the last one is labor, you know, and COVID exacerbated that. And we can see that. And also people want family work-life balance. So, you know, I think the, the move to the four-day work week, those sorts of things, and tech will help facilitate that. So anything that can help in the, you know, when we move from tellers to the ATM machines, you know, so that was so great because people didn't like those jobs. They were mundane. So now they can move into things that machines can't do as well as people. And I think we'll have a, a smarter workforce, a happier workforce, and um, that would be my three return to value, bull market for commodities, and tech will save the day. Love it. Well, maybe at some point, uh, Chad GPT-7 will be uh, creating <laughs> podcasts for us. But until then, thanks a lot for being on. And, uh, you know, we'll have you guys another podcast again sometime soon. It's been a real pleasure to work and Devin. Thanks a lot. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Bye.